And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Official sources are now saying that a total of seven people have been killed since protests erupted on Saturday over the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old from Iranian Kurdistan. Uh, she died last week after being arrested in Tehran for unsuitable attire. Join me right now to help us understand the incident and the impact of it. Uh, we've asked uh, Dr. Michael Rubin to join us, author of several books, including Eternal Iran, Continuity and Chaos, and Dancing with the Devil, The Perils of Engaging Rogue Regimes. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he specializes in Iran, Turkey, and the broader Middle East. He's a former Pentagon official and has lived in post-revolution Iran, Yemen, and both pre- and post-war Iraq. He spent time with the Taliban before 9-11, and for more than a decade, he taught classes at sea aboard about the Horn of Africa and Middle East conflicts, culture, and terrorism. You can follow him on Twitter at mrubin, R-U-B-I-N, mrubin 1971, and of course you can go to aei.org. Dr. Rubin, good to have you with me. Thanks. Hey, thanks for having me, Al. Let's begin with the incident itself. What do we actually know about her arrest, detention, and being in custody, and what actually happened? Well, across Iran, you have a morality police. Uh, they're loosely just called Hezbollah, which is a little bit different than Hezbollah, the terrorist group in Lebanon. Okay. And what they tend to do is harass women who are showing too much hair. This was... This was normal, although, I mean, Iranians absolutely despise it. Um, but she was arrested. She was put in a police van. And usually this is a sign that there's going to be some sort of shakedown. Her family's going to be asked to pay bribes at the police station to release her. But somehow in the police van, she was beaten to death. And the outrage across Iran is, uh, I mean, palpable. Iran has always been a tinderbox. Um, the question is whether the regime is able to smother the embers quicker than they can catch fire. But in this case, the outrage was just gasoline. Have we seen any outbursts like this before where people have, again, had intense protests? Well, actually we have, and this is one of the most interesting things about Iran. In 1999, 20 years after the Islamic uh, Revolution, there were nationwide protests. I was actually there at the time. I could smell the tear gas. And that was over wow. uh, student freedom, press freedom. In 2001, there were protests uh, after allegations of fixing a, a soccer match. In 2009, there was that post-election unrest uh, when the Iranians threw the election to allow Mahmoud Ahmadinejad to win a second term. More recently, there's been protests about the economy and the environment. And so just the sense that the Iranian people really don't like what, what's going on is really coming to the forefront. But what makes this special is, number one, it's across all classes, socioeconomic classes of society, and number two, the supreme leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, is 83 years old. He's had some serious health issues regarding cancer. He's partially paralyzed. And many people believe that his lifespan will now be in weeks rather than months. Wow. So there's, there's, they're looking, so expected there's going to be a top-level a top level change there. How, right. Basically, the pressure cooker is, yeah. um, the, the top is coming off the pressure cooker. Yeah, yeah. Now, have, have officials associated with uh, the morality police, uh, 
defended the actions of the morality police here? In other words, uh, is anybody who's trying to justify what happened to her? Well, basically, no one is. I mean, the Iranian um, modus vivendi, Al, is usually just to deny, to blame this on foreign propaganda. But because they do this so much, it's like the Ayatollah who cried wolf. Yeah. No one believes them anymore. <laughs> and so this just leads to further outrage. And again, this is no longer just about Masa Amini. Several other people have been killed. And if the Iranians say seven have been killed, you can bet it's exponentially higher. Yeah, yeah. Um, what kind of access do uh, Iranians have to, uh, you know, uh, Instagram or uh, Twitter or Facebook? Okay, well, that's actually an excellent question. The Iranian, Iran has always been one of the most technologically savvy countries. They were the second country in the Middle East after Israel to embrace the Internet, for example. I did my Ph.D. dissertation on their embrace of the telegraph. Wow. But I won't bore you with 600 pages about that. <laughs> uh, suffice to say, the most popular um, websites today and social media sites are Facebook, Instagram, and then they use the telegram, mes- um, telegram chat messenger sort of service. Well, the Iranians are now trying to shut down Instagram. Usually what they try to do is also slow down the Internet, if not cut it off. Most Iranians have VPNs. Um, common sat- like small ha- um, satellites to reach, um, satellite receivers to reach cable television mm-hmm. and uh, access Internet are common. Uh, people can hide those in their apartments. So the Iranians are experts at bypassing these sorts of official restrictions. Okay. So so there's a good chance, then, that many Iranians are seeing this through the eyes of those outside Iran? That's absolutely the case. And remember, Iran also has a huge diaspora. People talk to each other. Right. I mean, one of the ironies here, if I may, Al, is we have so many Western diplomats. We have some journalists who go and visit, most recently Leslie Saul from 60 Minutes, who don the headscarf, and they say that this is because they're trying to be culturally sensitive. But when Iranian women themselves are willing to die to not have forced a job, (laughs) then how can we say that this is Iranian culture when the Iranians themselves are saying, don't impose this on us? Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, Now, uh, I want to come back to the question of the mid-level fi- officials. Um, is there is there anybody within the hierarchy there in Iran, Iranian government, that has come out and protested her death? The answer to that is no. The thing to understand about Iran, however, is oftentimes we talk about hardliners versus reformers. Right. Even when you talk to hardliners, and I do, you can see in their eyes, it's like in the last years of the Soviet Union, they no longer believe what they're saying. The problem is this muddle through reform is never going to work. And the reason is there's something called the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. We oftentimes think of that in terms of the terrorism which they uh, employ overseas. But while the regular Iranian army is about territorial defense, the Revolutionary Guards is about defense of the ideology of the revolution. So their enemies are either foreign or domestic. They have units in every Iranian province whose job it is is to put down any sort of domestic uprising. So you're not going to have the will of the people, I mean, triumph 
if it's the guys with the guns who are willing to to implement the utmost brutality. Yeah. Okay. Um, does Iran see itself, uh, you know, this, the Islamic Republic, does it want to export its revolution, the 1979 revolution? It absolutely does. I mean, you're asking a great question, Al. Not only in the Iranian constitution is this implied, but it's actually specified in the founding statutes of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Now, back in 2008, there was a debate inside Iran and Persian about whether or not export of revolution was about building Iran up as sort of a soft power mecca, a model which people would want to emulate, or whether it was about sponsoring insurgency. Mm. And that debate ended with saying it's all about the insurgency. It's all about the hard power. So when we want to sit across the table from Iranian diplomats and engage, it's important not to mirror image. These, these officials are every bit as ideological as Soviet diplomats were, Chinese diplomats are, North Koreans are, or for that matter, the Khmer Rouge was. We have to understand the ideology driving, even if most Iranians just want to live like you and I. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just curious what they, how they expect to export a revolution that is uh, Shiite uh, when the overwhelming number of Muslims in the world are uh, Sunni? Is... Well, another great question. And you're, I, I mean, by profession, I'm a historian. Uh, my friends say that that means I, I, I get paid to predict the past, and admittedly <laughs> I only get that right half the time, they would say. But the thing to understand is, in our narrative about Islam, we often talk about how the Shiites broke away from the Sunnis. But the reason we say that is when, when the West first learned about Islam, we learned about it usually through the Ottoman Empire. They were Sunni. Right. And, but from an Iranian narrative, it's not the Sunnis which broke away, uh, the Shiites who broke away, it was the Sunnis who broke away. So for the revolution in Iran, they see themselves not as a Shiite revolution, but as an Islamic revolution. This is why, for example, in Egypt, they really reached out to the Muslim Brotherhood a decade ago when Mohammed Morsi was briefly in power. Really? I did not know that. That's, that's fascinating. That explains, that, that actually gives me a better sense of what's going on <laughs> and what their aspirations might be. Um, well, in the, in the region there, uh, how, how do people, how do the surrounding nations feel about Iran getting nuclear weapons? Well, first of all, let's talk about how Iranians feel about them getting yeah, nuclear weapons. Yeah, go ahead. Weapons. Yeah. If, if when Iranians poll and they say, do you think we have the right to have nuclear technology. Overwhelmingly, they say yes. But back a few years ago, an Iranian think tank inside Iran asked, would you feel more secure if the, Iranian, if the regime had nuclear weapons? And two-thirds of Iranians said no. That think tank was shut down and the people were put in jail. Wow. That shows you something. But across the region, people distrust the Iranians immensely. I spend a lot of time in Iraq now, in southern Iraq, which is Shiite, and they despise the Iranians um, there's actually a saying in the streets of Basra, one of the big southern Iraqi cities, which is almost entirely Shiite, that if you break the bones of an Iranian, um, I, I can't say the word on, um, <laughs> on the radio, but suffice to say, human waste uh, comes, <laughs> comes out. out. Oh, mercy. Yeah, that's an ugly image. You're right. So Shiite Muslims in Iraq... Uh, have greater loyalty to their own uh, national experiment there 
rather than to the Islamic Revolution of Iran. That's absolutely the case. I mean, if you want me to go into sort of Shiism for a second, the concept which drives Iran is this notion that, you know, that the Ayatollah Khomeini led the Islamic Revolution. He was going to be the deputy of the Messiah on Earth. But most uh, guys believe that until the Shia Messiah come back, comes back, yeah. a guy named Mohammed Al-Mahdi... Uh, we'll, we'll have to postpone we're, we're that conversation because I'm out of time. But, Michael, thank you so much. Excellent.